Welcome to Short Course, episode 63, for May 24th, 2019. I'm your host, Ben Barry. I got a pretty interesting listener email a week or two ago, and one of the things that he talked about and we emailed back and forth a little bit about was the idea of ego and some of the negative consequences that having an excessive ego can have for for your shooting. And one of the things that came up in the discussion that I thought was worth drawing out in a podcast episode is just all the different types and all the different ways that that ego can manifest. I mean, it's one of those terms that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And so I want to try as much as I can to to sort of specifically hone in on a, on a few things. So one example of, of ego and the sort of manifestation that it can have and the, the negative impact on shooting or on, on your match performance is just the idea of getting too tied up in what you associate yourself with. So if you use a certain product or shoot a certain gun or, or any anything that you can sort of associate your personal identity with, if you feel like you are too closely coupled, too closely tied to that particular thing, then it becomes very difficult to see it clearly and to see the shortcomings. I mean, one example of this would be a sponsorship. So this is actually one of the reasons that I've never really sought any sponsorships or tried to, you know, be sponsored by anybody just because I, one of the things that, that I felt like it would do is impair my, my objectivity about something. I, I want people to know that when they ask me, if some piece of equipment that I use is good, I'll tell them the truth. And in a lot of cases, it, the answer might be, well, it's kind of good for this, but I wouldn't recommend it for everybody. And in some cases, it, it might be that I do generally recommend something, but a lot of times they're, they're caveats or trade-offs. And, and I want to be able to tell that to people. I don't want somebody, I don't want to feel like I, I have to convert somebody to get my, you know, whatever sales up or, or I, I know most sponsorships aren't necessarily that transactional, but I just want to sort of have that objectivity to not feel that, that my identity is too tied up in something. And part of the reason I, I feel that way is actually a sort of unintentional, uh, blunder, a, a way that I, that I walked into being in that situation for really no reason at all. And the, <laughs> the story behind that is just that when I got started in, IDPA and USPSA years ago. So I was shooting IDPA with a Glock 17 back in 2011. Uh, sometime in the in 2013, I got a, an MNP Pro. I actually got two of them. And so I had a backup gun and a, a main gun, and those were sort of my those were my competition production guns. And at the time that that so this was around the time that CZs and 10 folios were. The, the dominant guns in production, everybody knew that to shoot production, you had to shoot a CZ. They were what everybody ran. You know, you could get those sweet, smooth, six-pound double action. So it wasn't that big of a deal. And all the extra weight helped hold the muzzle down and blah, 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 blah. And I just got it in my head that, no, like that orthodoxy doesn't sound right, that you can be competitive with a, with a plastic gun. And so on some level, like, I sort of set a quest for myself to do it. And so I had these MNPs and I was trying to shoot them in production and be competitive and I was doing okay. Uh, you know, I got to A class and I was practicing a lot. And I think ultimately the the thing that ended up frustrating me more than anything else was just the fact that I I was starting to tear the guns up, the, the literal plastic frames, 
as I was as I was doing reloads in dry fire. You know, at the time I was working on classification skills and trying to trying to work on draws and reloads, and I was just every little missed reload I could I could feel it kind of dinging up the plastic frame because it, at least with Glocks it's plastic coated magazines on a plastic magwell, but with MNPs it's a metal mag digging right into a into a plastic magwell. And, and so the, the damage is pretty much inevitable. And I told myself, yeah, you know, it's not that big of a deal. It's, but at some point at the back of my mind, I wasn't practicing as hard as I could have. And I ended up getting kind of, I was never quite as confident in the accuracy of those guns as I would have liked to be. Uh, there were, you know, especially early on, there were some questions about MNP accuracy. I wasn't a particularly accurate shooter. And so I, I never knew if it was the gun or myself. And, but I never had that confidence that if, if the shots weren't good, that it was me. It was like, oh, maybe it's the gun. Maybe I need a new barrel. Maybe, oh, Apex is coming out with this new MNP barrel. Maybe I need to get one of those. And maybe I need to get one for both. And it just, it, it, it never let me focus on just shooting. And eventually what ended up happening was actually on the, the encouragement of my then fiance, now wife, she was like, listen, just like, if you didn't own these guns, like what gun would you shoot? If you could shoot any production gun, what would it be? And I looked around and this was before shadow, the shadow two came out. And I was like, well, uh, probably a Tanfolio. They seem like they're reasonable. They have a lot of options. They're there are a lot of guys on podiums winning with tenfolios, so at least if I had that gun, I'd know that that's the best there is, or at least it's not holding me back. It's that that's not a valid excuse. It can do what everybody else the best as well as anything else. And so to celebrate us getting married, she bought one for me. I bought a backup, and now I had two of them, and I've been competing with them ever since. And they, you know, there've been ups and downs and hiccups and annoyances with them, but no more so than any other gun. And and but I was able to sort of put aside that ego, this, this idea that I was trying to, I don't know, prove something by by showing that you could be competitive with these plastic guns. And certainly I think there are people out there showing that, but at the time I was just, I got wrapped up into it and, and I felt like I couldn't change, that somehow I'd be going back on what I told people by changing guns. And ultimately I, I don't think it really mattered that much. At the end of the day, I mean, one of the things that I, I have learned in this sport is people don't really care that much. Like people don't pay as much attention to like what you think is important as, as you do. Like they, if people switch guns all the time, eh, it just, it doesn't matter that much. I think especially in the age of social media and Instagram influence and all this, it's really easy to think that people care a lot more about what you think and what you do than you actually do. And, and so I always try and remind myself that like, it really doesn't matter. And if somebody really cares, then they'll ask you and they'll say, hey, I noticed you switched from this thing that you used to say you liked to this other thing. What's up with that? And I've had some of those conversations and they always end well. I say, well, you know, thing A was good for this, but bad for this. And so I switched to thing B because it's good for these other things. And I don't mind the things that it's bad at. You know, everything has trade-offs. And so I'll just explain the trade-offs of, of whatever it is. So that's that's one kind of ego, this sort of attachment to either... Uh, what you think people expect of you or your your sort of public persona or if you've made a big deal about being sponsored by a company and using their products or if you really talk about how great some gun is or some bullets or some belt whatever it is 
the more that the more that you talk about it, the more that you talk something up. It's it's very tempting to get dug in and not let yourself see the shortcomings of whatever that is clearly, because you feel like you've staked your reputation and your self identity on that thing. And so you don't want to go back on that. You don't want to think of yourself as being wrong. You don't want to think of yourself as telling people incorrect information. And so you, it's easier to overlook some of those things and, and not quite look at them clearly. So I think that's, that's one aspect of ego. Another aspect of ego, and this also ties back to the idea that nobody really cares as much about your shooting as you do, is what I have come to think of as ego self-defense. And the place that you'll see this is when somebody shoots a stage, usually when they shoot it poorly, or maybe they shoot it overall well, but one aspect goes kind of funny. And as soon as they unload and show clear, rather than following the RO, looking at the targets, gathering their magazines, trying to sort of gather the data and and record what happened, process the stage and, and sort of make judgments, they're immediately turning around and you know making a comment on it or say, haha, did you see how this thing happened? Or, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did this. Or I've never done such and such before. That's so unlike me. All of these things are in some way them trying to defend their ego. They, they think that they've done something that's somehow shameful and they need to tell everybody around them like, oh no, that that's not me. That That's not who I really am. Like, isn't it so funny that I did that? Like, that's not really who I am. And there's, I, there's two fundamental problems with that as I see it. The first is just if they say that, then they'll come to believe it. The, the more you say, oh, that's not, that's not really like me. Uh, you know, that really never happens. You, you can some, you can kind of tell yourself that for a while and, and block out the evidence. But if you do it once, odds are you probably have done it more than once. Odds are that, that it is actually a pattern for you in some way. But if the first thing that you do is rush to defend your ego and tell people that that's not like you, then you're going to sort of block that out. And the second thing is just that by by talking, you're not listening. And in this scenario, you're, what you should be listening to is not necessarily what other people are saying, but you should be listening to the results of your stage. You should be walking around, looking at your targets, and mentally reviewing the stage and sort of making notes of what was happening while the stage was going on. You know, rerunning what just happened in your mind and making a note of any sort of funny feeling that you happen like, oh yeah, why why did I pull that shot low left? Oh, when I finished the reload, my weak hand wasn't in, in the right position. And it's only in sort of mentally playing that film back while it's fresh in your head or walking around and looking at the targets. It's only taking in the data right then, right after you've had that run, that you can take that data away and then study it for later. Now, certainly there's you can gather some of that data from footage, whether it's first person or third person. You, you can sort of do some amount of game film analysis, but I find that it's actually really useful to sort of reflect on what happened, look at the target, see if how you called your shots is actually what showed up on the target. And I even keep a notebook in my range bag and I'll, I'll write down little impressions about, oh, you know, coming into the third position, something felt funny there, you know, just all, all the things that I feel like don't show up on video, whether it's a, a visual hiccup or something I was surprised by, you know, I came in on this array and I thought I would shoot it right to left, but I ended up shooting the middle target because I kind of saw it first. Just those, those little things that those planning errors or the, the interesting execution nuances that might not show up on video, but that are useful for reviewing. And ultimately for going back and noticing trends between matches, if, if something happens, you know, just make a note of it, write it down. And there's something about recording it that I find helps me to, to see the patterns better. But obviously if you're not 
going downrange to look at your targets, if you're not reviewing that footage, if you're immediately trying to essentially establish a narrative, right? Tell people what they should think about the stage run that you just had, which honestly is probably not going to be that memorable. Like most people aren't watching you shoot that closely. Uh, this is true for me as well. I, I don't assume that people like, care all that much when I shoot. I, I'm, I'm more interested in gathering the data and being able to, to sort of draw my own conclusions from what I've just shot than trying to, you know, campaign with everybody on the squad. Oh, look at how funny that was. And, you know, really change their minds about something because ultimately they're going to think what they're going to think. They saw me shoot. I can try and tell them what I thought happened or make some excuse. But at the end of the day, uh, I mean, they're going to draw their own conclusions and me trying to convince them of something isn't productive. So I usually don't bother. You know, if someone comes up and asks me, hey, what happened here? Like, what was the situation there? Like, I'm happy to, to explain if I can provide some enlightenment or, or some more nuance to uh, what was actually going on. But usually if, if someone asks me, you know, hey, what happened there? You know, right after a stage, like while I'm trying to look at the targets, I, you know, I might give sort of a curt answer because I'm still I'm still trying to process it myself. I, if I try and give an answer right then, I I don't know yet. I, I haven't I haven't figured it out yet. And so you need to have that that time to sort of take in what has happened before trying to to put out a judgment. Now, one thing that I when I was preparing for this episode that I sort of wrote down in my notes was trying to draw a distinction between ego and confidence because they're, they're, they can sometimes come very close together. And I think confidence can very easily go too far into hubris or into overconfidence. And so where, where does that line fall? Like, what's the difference between, yes, I know that I can step up and shoot a 10-yard swinger and confidently get good points on it. And, oh, yeah, 10-yard swingers, no problem. I shoot those in practice all the time. What, what's that difference? Where, where does the line get drawn between ego and confidence? And to be honest, I'm not exactly sure of the answer. I have some ideas. I mean, the thing that, that sort of comes to mind is that confidence usually involves a process. Confidence says, if I do X, Y, and Z, then then this will be a, a good outcome. If I'm shooting a swinger, I need to come in. I need to make sure I establish my grip, that I, I know where the swinger is in its swing, get a good sight picture, and then shoot two shots, call them, and not leave the position until I have two, you know, called two good shots. That's the process that leads to the good result. Whereas ego or overconfidence or hubris, that, that tends to come in where you just assume because you've done that in the past, you can do it again. Not necessarily because of the process, but because of the outcome. You're not thinking, oh, I if I want to engage this swinger correctly, then I need to do X, Y, and Z. You just think to yourself, oh, yeah, yeah, I've done that before. I can do that. Like, that's something I can do. That is that is like me. That is in my self-image. And that fundamentally is not, that's not a process. That's an outcome. And so you can't just rely on the, the past history of being able to do something as as being a, a source of confidence because I think ultimately that's that's where it falls into something like overconfidence. I think true confidence separate from ego is more about knowing the process and having a repeatable process. And so I think the, if I can sort of have one takeaway about this, about 
what to i mean part of it is just noticing these things that the scenarios that i've sort of talked about but noticing oh man this is starting to to verge over into into ego i'm, I'm starting to get overconfident or I'm, I'm starting to not look objectively at something because i've told so many people that it's great that i actually don't let myself see its shortcomings so those are sort of the negative cases but sort of a, a proactive positive thing to to take away from this is just to allow yourself to revise your views. Don't ever feel like because you've said something in the past, even if you've been saying it for years, don't feel like you're stuck with that. Don't feel like you can't change your mind on that because ultimately those are going to be the the things that are the most important. The, the trivial stuff, you know, oh, I got this new thing. I used it for a month and I decided it wasn't good. So I went back to the old thing. Those those are kind of the the things that matter the least in a lot of cases often the, the things that are holding you back the most are the things that are most ingrained in your self-identity or into your technique or, or into your system. You're, you're so used to having whatever it is that you don't even see it as there. It's just baked into your, your mental landscape. And when you can pry that loose and, and sort of remove it and replace it with something better, then that's when you can actually make progress. And so in a, in a sort of paradoxical way, you actually are better off not trying to to stick rigidly to some kind of consistent ideal that just because you've said something you'll, you'll stick with it. I mean, I think you can see this in in instructors. You know, some instructors will revise their curriculum and it's always being updated and they're putting out sort of new editions of whatever their book is and they'll they'll come up with new ideas and new drills and new techniques and other ones will just, you know, write a book and then sell it for years or, you know, have the same curriculum and just, just keep going forward and not really modify it. And I think if you really want to stay on the forefront, if you really want to always be changing, you have to be willing to go back and look at something that you said a year ago that you wrote two years ago and say, yeah, that seemed that that was my understanding at the time, that that was my best guess then, but now I understand the topic better. And so I'm going to, I'm going to say something differently. I, I have a more nuanced view. It's it's fundamentally a trap to think that you have to be consistent to your, your previous views just because you said it before. You should be consistent to your previous views if you think it's still the best, if you think something is still quality. But uh, one thing, one sort of mental trick that I use for this is I, I try to not ever define myself as something that I am. I try and define myself as something that I do. And so I, I don't ever say, oh, I'm a TANFO guy or, oh, I'm a USPSA guy. I say, I shoot a TANFO. I shoot USPSA. I shoot production. I'm not a production guy. It's not something that I try and associate with my identity. It's not who I am. It's just something that I do. And I feel like that makes it easier to mentally change those things because I'm not, I'm not branding myself. I, I don't, you know, I don't have a, I have, I have shirts that have 10 folios on them, but I don't have tattoos. You know, if I get rid of the guns, I can get rid of the shirts, but I try to always keep things defined in a sense of, of what I'm currently doing and not necessarily binding up my, my identity or my ego or my public persona. You know, my, none of my usernames anywhere are like, Oh, USPSA Ben or, you know, three gun Joe or anything like, I'm just a, like, I'm just, I'm just Ben. Like I just, whatever I do, you can see in the videos. That's the stuff that I'm doing. You know, I, and that's part of the reason I, I got away from shooting IDPA. It was never a conscious decision. I never said, oh, I'm going to stop shooting IDPA. It's just I realized at some point it had been over a year since I shot an IDPA match. And I said, oh, well, okay. Like That's that's just a reflection of reality. That's a, a day-by-day choice. But I never kept shooting IDPA because I felt like it was 
a part of my social media profile or something. I just, it just slowly waned away. And it, you know, in some ways I miss it. It, you know, those are, those were fun matches and they have a different flavor and a different group and a different type of people. And I, I wish I had more time to go out and shoot those. And in addition to dry fire and practice and matches, but I don't. And so I've made my choices and I stick with them, but I had that flexibility to sort of follow the, the natural progression because I hadn't established and planted a flag and said, Oh, I do this and this. I just, I am what I do. If you want to see what I do, look at my, look at my blog, look at my YouTube channel. Those, that's what I shoot. Ask me questions and I'll tell you, but there's no, there's no branding. There's no ego there. It's just what you see is what you get. Well, that wraps up this episode of short course. I post my match videos at youtube.com slash USPSA. My email is podcast at barryshooting.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, consider buying a shirt at barryshooting.com slash shop. Talk to you next time.